There are a couple of ways that we could approach the beginning of a series, uh, uh, like looking at Matthew. Um, we could do a, let me give you a whole overview of the whole, whole book and why we need to look at it. Or I thought we could really drill into a little bit, or we could do a mix of both. So when I sat down yesterday afternoon to have a look at it, I ended up doing a bit of both, only to remember, of course, that the opening chapter of the book of Matthew is the genealogy, uh, the family tree of Jesus. So um, we are going to look a little bit at that later, and I'm sure as I go through all of the involved history of every member of the genealogy, you're going to find it very, very interesting. Sola Scriptura and all that. So what you've got to remember when we, when, in terms of our position here at Redeemer, that we believe that everything that's in the Bible is there for a purpose. Like it's there for a reason. It's not there by accident. And you have to sometimes apply a magnifying glass to it a little bit and think, you know, why would, the question would be, why would God put some of this stuff in the Bible? So firstly, just a little bit about this. Obviously you'll know, uh, or most of you, or all of you will know, that there's four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And it's like they give you different portraits of Jesus. They, they all kind of put a lens into slightly different things with a slightly different emphasis. And, and Matthew has some very stunning content actually. Uh, and so we are going to take time over this. Dan and I met the other day and we carved up about the first 30 weeks or something. <laughs> we are going to do some other stuff in between. You'll be pleased to know. But we thought, there's just some stunning content. And that's for a reason. For instance, we know that Matthew, who we believe wrote this book, was a tax collector. That means he was, in the eyes of people, a scumbag. He was a Jewish tax collector. The second point being, he was a Jew. So get this. This is written by a man who ripped off his own people on behalf of an occupying political body, the Romans. So he's come from a position where at one time in his life he was a bit of a scumbag and not necessarily loved. So he writes from the position of someone who was a sinner. Yeah. You know, that, that's Matthew. Which then, once you understand that, you start to see things differently. Like, for instance, without stealing whoever's thunder it is when we get to Matthew 18 in about a year's time. In Matthew 18, there's this thing about how you resolve conflict. You know, and it says, um, you know, if someone upsets you, go and talk to them. And if you can't get any resolution, take someone with you as a witness. And then if they don't listen, t talk it through with the church or the elders. You know, deal with it as a church. And if they don't deal with it, then, even after that, you say, it says, treat them like a tax collector. Which everyone reads that and thinks, scumbag, put them out of the church. It's a tax collector. But actually what Matthew's saying is, treat them like you treat me as me. I was one of them. And look, now I'm sorted out. In other words, treat them like they're a target for evangelism. They need the grace of God. We've got to win their hearts back. We've got to win them back. So once you understand who's writing the book, it, it shines a different light on things that you're reading. So that's very important. So he writes from the perspective of someone who's redeemed. He is also writing predominantly to a Jewish audience. So you need to understand that as well. 
So he's, he's trying to persuade his people about Jesus. Um, that doesn't mean to say it's not valid for us because we're Gentiles. It's just saying that you need to understand that's the flavour. So, for instance, Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel. Much more. And, and he quotes a lot from the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, because he's trying to persuade religious teachers with the validity of what he's saying. And he's really organised. He's, like, he's got some sort of detail weird thing going on. So this is, like, this is just the overview like, there's five amazing speeches in Matthew, which is why we need to look at them all, because they're all very definitive, like, you know, the Sermon on the Mount would be one of them. There are ten profound miracles, and they're all contained in chapters 8 to 9. There's seven parables, and they're all in chapter 13. There's seven woes against religious teachers, and they're all in chapter 23. And he does other things, like there's double characters, so there's not just one demonized person gets dealt with, there's two. There's two demonized people, there's two blind men, there's two donkeys, there's two, there's double stories, there's two requests for a sign, there's two accusations that Jesus is the devil, there's two healings of two blind men. So you see this rhythm goes through the book of Matthew because he's got some kind of weird OCD thing going on. So it's a really organized book, but that's really good for pub quizzes. Like, if you are in a Bible quiz, which I hate, because everyone always wants to go on, like, Bible teachers' tables, and then they get asked a question, you don't know what it is, and it's really embarrassing. But anyway, it's really good for that, because if someone says, oh, you know, where was the parable of the this? You go, uh, oh, yes, if it's the book of Matthew, they're all in chapter 13. So you've pretty much got it. So I've just given you a point at the Christmas quiz, because I'm doing another Christmas quiz, and it will be tough. And there will be questions about parables in it. So it's a really organized book. But then you say, why is it so organized? Well, as we read through Matthew, this is just the overview bit. I've got a whole sermon to come yet. As you read through Matthew, it's like he's saying, look at the detail. Like, this is amazing. Look, you know, this is eyewitness stuff. You know, I, I was there, I saw it. You know, I'm, I'm, and, and it's, it's organized. It's like I'm putting a legal argument together for people who had legal-minded brains like religious teachers and stuff. So it's a really kind of precise and really interesting book as well once you start to get into it. And once you see, you start to understand the structure of the Bible like this, it does bring it alive a little bit. You know, you can, it's easier to start to navigate. Because I don't know about you, uh, some of you here are new Christians and some of you have been Christians for a million years in this church but when I first started reading the Bible I didn't understand it at all I mean you're well know don't you the first Bible ever got a smoked it was made it because it's made out of Rizzlers but when I actually started trying to read it I didn't understand it at all I mean it was like a nightmare you know I thought why is that there and why is this there and then it's the same when you get into a book why are things put in certain ways but once you start to understand it every book of the Bible has a really really interesting structure so Let's try and understand why God would be interested in putting family trees in the Bible. So, if you have a Bible, uh, open it with me. And we'll go from chapter 1, verse 1. If you have an NIV, you'll see some bold type at the top that says, The Genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. 
That was added later. Right, so these bold headings. It simply starts with this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There is no fluffy warm-up. You know, it doesn't, in, technically, the book is actually anonymous. It's, it's tradition and, and stuff that tells us that Matthew wrote the Bible and sort of scholarly input. It just goes in with a very, very bold and blunt statement. I, I could be honest with you, when I look at this genealogy, it did get me thinking of something. I, I don't even know who my great-granddad is. Do, you, do you, anyone here know who their great-granddad is? Not met him. Do you know his name? Oh, Fletcher. <laughs> Good shout. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Or if any of you said, do you know your great-great-granddad or your great-great-grandmother... Isn't it amazing how quickly our histories disappear? Don't you think that's, that is really weird? Unless you're really posh. And then you go in your stately home and you've got, you've got paintings of all your ancestors. I've noticed that. Rich people have paintings of all their ancestors. I haven't even got a photo of my granddad. Apparently, my granddad on one side was a drunk publican in Ireland. Go figure. And on the other side, we were Hungarian Jews called Feldash. But apart from that, that's all I know. My dad said he grew up eating Hungarian food, goulash and stuff. I think that's, that's why he's assumed that we came from Hungary and were Jewish. But no, we actually did. We came from a place called Novi Sad in Serbia. Apart from that, I don't know anything. Isn't that weird? Life is so fleeting, isn't it? For most of us. You just become like a faded memory. Unless there's a God who loves you and made you. So to God, obviously, it's very, very important because he's saying, uh, this is more than that. You know, this is, this is, this is for real. And, and Matthew is saying, Jesus was a Jew. And he comes from the line of David. And he comes from the line of Abraham. And for those in the know, the religious teachers who'd be reading it, they'd be going, prophecies about that in the Old Testament. And, and, and Matthew is claiming he's that man. So we just read that and think, oh yeah, this is a Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But actually that's shocking stuff. He's, he's already in the first line, Matthew is getting in people's faces. And then we've got the, the genealogy. So it's almost like Matthew is saying, okay, I'm saying this is where Jesus comes from. He was a Jew. There were prophecies in your religious books about this and now I'm going to show you how we know that he comes from the line of David and Abraham and along the way I'm going to shock you about the nature of God when you read some of these names and I'm going to get right in your face with it this is the opening few lines so I mean it's contentious stuff as you start to look into it for instance when you get to verse 7, I'm not going to take you through all of it for those of you who are really worried about that. But verse 7, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, is in there. Who was Rehoboam? Rehoboam was a king of Israel and he was the son of Solomon. Solomon, uh, this incredibly wise and powerful king. Rehoboam is famous for messing up. He became king and ditched the older, wiser advisors. 
and surrounded himself with young cool people like me. He surrounded himself with cool kids and ignored all the wisdom that his, his father's advisors accumulated and turned away from God and it all went pear-shaped and the kingdom of Israel split into Judah in the south and Israel in the north and they went perpetually at war during his whole reign. He was completely and utterly incompetent and he was an idol worshipper and he's in the line of Jesus. That's really interesting. An idol in worshipper who was totally incompetent. And then you've got Jehoram in verse 8 who killed his six brothers to get power. So, you know, you could be a Pharisee, a religious teacher in a day, you start, you're already wound up by verse 1, and then you start to read it through and you think, you know, this is, this is heresy. You know, this is, you're claiming he's the Messiah and he's got these people there. Jeho Jehoram killed his six brothers and he got a letter from Elijah warning him about his ungodly attitude and basically he was given in Second Chronicles a completely incurable disease and died after just two years. You've got Ammon in verse 10, who was another king of Judah, who became king at age 22, was completely evil, and it's also in the line, reigned for two years and then died. And then you've got another fascinating one. If you're a theology geek, if you're like a Bible study geek, which we will, of course, all become in this church, uh, the next one is Jeconiah, which I'll just point out. He appears in here, and he is absolutely fascinating in verse 11. Because Jeconiah was cursed by Jeremiah. In chapter 22, verses 28 to 30, if you want to check me out on this later. And, and Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as if childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none, none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Now you need to get your head around this a little bit. Now if you're a theology geek you're going to love this. Because what basically has happened here is that an Old Testament prophet has said, of this man who is in the line of Jesus, his descendants will never sit on the throne. What? Does that mean the Bible's wrong? So how does that work out when the end game by verse 16 is Jesus? Well, people debate the answer to this. It's a known conundrum. And some people say, well, God didn't mean to curse Obviously changed his mind. Uh, Jeconiah was actually imprisoned and was invited onto the king's table again, but stayed in exile and stayed a prisoner all his life. So I think, you know, pretty much the curse maintained. I don't think God would do that and then undo it unless there was an explanation in scripture. But of course the obvious answer is, and Matthew is really strong on this, is that Jesus was born of a virgin. His, his royal blood comes through Mary his legal status as king comes through Joseph. But actually at that final cut-off, Jesus was conceived by the Spirit of God. 
that a prophecy is true. So for those, for those who would know their stuff, no, for those who'd be reading it back in the day, who knew the history, they'd be thinking, well, this claim that Jesus is born of a virgin, is, is that it? Either that or they'd be really wound up. Or they'd start arguing about it. So you see, once you start to get into it, it gets really, really interesting. And then you've got like these women who are mentioned. And some of them are like, really contentious. So Tamar, in verse 3, played the role of a, pretending to be a prostitute to get her father-in-law pregnant. And, 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 and seriously, I know some of you are like, what? That's in the Bible and everything. She pretended to be a prostitute to get her father-in-law pregnant and she's in the line of Jesus. Rahab, in verse 5, was a prostitute. Mary, in verse 16, to the outside world, looked like an unwed mother. Very contentious in its time. So what's this all about? You've got prostitutes, idol worshippers, corruption, evil kings, the cursed, and some people who never get another mention in the whole of scripture in the line of Jesus. And then right at the end, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there are 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And then he goes on to tell us about the birth of Jesus. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. It's good to read this when it's not Christmas. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. This is verse 18. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So for those who have just read about Jeconiah, now they begin to understand. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to, oppose her to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, that's the re-establishment of the genealogy there, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, which they'll call him Emmanuel which means God with us. So at this point he's quoting Isaiah 7, of course, so he's quoting the Old Testament. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. So you read this through. Prostitutes, idol worshippers, evil kings, prisoners, the cursed, the never to be mentioned again, and you think, what is Matthew trying to tell us? Well, in one sense it's a reassurance. It's a reassurance to me of authenticity. Um, if I was trying to make up a religion, like some people have through history, and still continue to do, I would make it sound a bit more perfect. You know, like the, the North Korea have just been celebrating their 
170 years since the foundation of North Korea, one of the most closed countries in the world. And they've reissued some of the stories, like uh, the father of the current leader apparently wrote 1,500 books in his three years at university. Wow. And six operas. And once got 19 on a round of golf. Those of you who play golf, we got, he got a hole in one on every one apart from one where it went slightly wrong, just to show he's got a slight flaw, I guess. Not so the Bible. I mean, it's, 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 it's warts and all, isn't it? There's fragility, there's failure. And that kind of reassures me that, you know, the Holy Spirit's not trying to hide anything. It's a, you know, it's a gritty, real story. And when people come at you with criticisms about Christianity or just about a pompous hypocrite, you say, actually, you know, the Bible is full of tragedy and failure, but, but God's still loving us in the midst of that. That's what he says to me. I mean, because the second thing it says to me is that God's plan will be carried out despite us. He's sovereign. We use this phrase, the sovereignty of God. God ultimately is in charge. You know, we can have weeks where we feel like we're winning, losing, or having a draw. But win, lose, or draw, God is in charge. Big picture, it's going to be all right. I often say to people, and I'm praying for them, they're going through a dark time. Look, I've read the last page of the Bible. It's got a fantastic ending. It's all going to be okay. It'll work out okay in the end, despite us. And we can have weeks where we mess up big time. Or we get a bit down or depressed about stuff. But God's still sovereign. I mean, there are characters here who didn't just mess up big time. I mean, they were evil. And God still worked his purposes out. I find that... Um, comforting like Justin last week sharing his story of utter downfall and then God picking him up well Arthur White when he came utter downfall but God's still working his purposes out for his family and stuff or like me or you and just a couple of little things I mean not just even like in terms of personal tragedy but two things happened to me this week as I was musing on this which were just bizarre really um, one was at work I have a I control a significant amount of grant money to to help people who are starting new churches but then someone came to see me who didn't fit our criteria but had spent out about three and a half grand of their own money putting in an extra night shift at work as a chef in some Spoonies pub or something and, and put three and a half thousand pounds of his own money into this project to win people to Christ uh, a great sacrifice, I mean, he's not a wealthy man, you know, and uh, living in a bed sitting, just putting all his money into this thing. Uh, and I said to say to him, look, I just, you, what you're doing doesn't fit the criteria. I mean, you've seen people become followers of Jesus and all sorts of stuff, but it just doesn't fit the grant criteria. It's not, my hands are tied. I mean, I suppose you could lie about it, but that wouldn't be very reassuring for you lot, would it? If we sort of bent the walls a bit too much. So I just had to swallow it. And as he left, um, I did say to him, look, if... If there's any way we could work this out, I'll, I'll help you. As he left, so I just quick prayer at my desk. Oh, come on, God, it's got to be three and a half thousand pounds sloshing around somewhere. Kid you not, I mean, I could show you the emails. I got an email a couple of hours later from a fellow in Cardiff saying, Hey, Beachy, uh, we set this work up in Cardiff. It's all gone pear shaped, didn't work out, but the good news is I've got three and a half thousand pounds sitting in an account to be used for some pioneering situation if you can find a use for it does that does that work for you i thought that's amazing 
You know, sovereignty of God, isn't it? God will work his purposes out. And there was another time this week. It was this week. It's funny how this happens, isn't it? I had a meeting at 8.30 on a Wednesday morning, which I would say was moderately brutal, and, and went on to about 9 o'clock. And by 9 o'clock, it had all finished, and I felt like I'd been in a knife fight, to be honest. I mean, it was a really tough meeting. I'm a bit down, you know. Then I opened up Facebook, and someone I hadn't spoken to for two years sent me a message saying, Carl, I'm not spoken to for two years. It's an evangelist, a national evangelist guy. He said, Carl, um, I, I found myself praying for you, weirdly, you know, this morning. This morning and, and God gave me the word mojo. He wants to give you a mojo back. And uh, God's with, God wants you to know he's with you and he's giving you the strength to fight on through. I thought, that is really weird. I mean, you know, A, that God would use the word mojo. How cool is that? You know, I thought it's remarkable. But God is working his purposes out. Despite us. And despite the stuff that's around us. And God's plan is not dependent on us doing certain things. Our job is to be in relationship with Jesus and to be faithful with what little we have, or if we've got much, be faithful with it and keep your eyes focused on him. And what this genealogy tells us, God will work it out. He'll work it out. Now there are prophecies, there are over hundreds of years. It will come to pass. Just stand in your place. If you're messed up, stop beating yourself up. Dust yourself off, pick yourself up again. Because God's working his purposes out. You sinned. Dust yourself off. Deal with it. Pick yourself up. God's working his purposes out. There's this overarching sense of power in this genealogy. Nothing, nothing can thwart the purposes of God. He made the heavens and the earth. He sent his son. He will bring things down to a point of completion. He will come back. He is in charge. It's going to be okay. That's what he tells us. He's working it out. And finally what he tells me is that Jesus gets us. I mean, he's, he's born as a baby boy, a human being in a mess of it all. So through all of this overarching grand scheme, he's born of a virgin in humble situation, then immediately has to go on the run with his family because the great war, the cosmic battle, really between darkness and light, begins to break out as Jesus invades the planet with his presence. But he identifies with us. I was just sitting having a cup of tea at home this morning on my sofa and felt the Lord take me to Hebrews 4.15 which says we don't have a great high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses you know, he, he, he gets us he understands us he's lived as a man and that's the book of Matthew that's what we're going to try and unpack sovereignty of God working his purposes out 
incredibly radical teaching about loving your enemies and being meek and being generous and being faithful and holy and miracles and weird parables and bizarre teaching that just cuts through and incredible encounters with people. But the background is chapter one. God is working his purposes out and it's all going to be okay. So do me a favour. When you find yourself a little bit stressed out this week, if you do, you might be one of these really chilled out people who never get stressed about anything. But if you find yourself a bit chilled out or some, uh, a bit stressed out at some point this week, you've got to remember, you've got to tell yourself, God is working his purposes out. Despite the people around me. You're in a work situation where someone's obstructing you for being a Christian. And you know that's what it is. God's working his purposes out. In a difficult relationship situation, God will work his purposes out. Because I've read it in the book, I've seen it. That there is incredible evil set against the purposes of God right in his family line and it was overcome. And that is why we're here today, worshipping God.